0: Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. This week's podcast, Ripples in the River of Knowledge. So in last week's post and podcast titled More Science Leads to More Innovation, we looked at four natural experiments where the supply of science was increased or decreased differentially across different scientific fields. And we found that when the supply of science is increased, you see more downstream technological innovation, and when the supply of science is decreased, less. Now, in this post, I'm going to argue that those studies, they actually underestimate the influence of science on innovation. So to begin, while it's true that more science leads to more innovation, the majority of technological innovations probably actually don't directly depend on recent science. You know, citing academic work in patents has become a lot more common over time. But even as late as 2018, 74% of patents didn't actually cite any scientific journal articles. Or you can look at a 2006 survey uh, where they asked European inventors to rate the importance of different sources of knowledge. Scientific literature was given a 2.5 out of 5 by these, scien- uh, by these inventors. That's lower than things like knowledge from customers and users or knowledge from the patent literature And if you ask them to rate the importance of universities and public research laboratories, that's just 1.4 out of 5. And you find similar results in an older survey from 1994 that asked U.S. R&D managers uh, about their use of science. And they estimated only 20% of R&D projects relied on public research. So instead, the dependency on science of technology is really unevenly distributed. Now, you can look at... The citations that different kinds of patents make to the scientific literature. There's a nice figure in the newsletter uh, from a paper by Marx and Fugie and they show things like patents in the chemistry and metallurgy sector, or human necessities, and that's a name that includes things like biomedical and pharma sectors. Those ones cite science much more intensively than other fields. Another field, like mechanical engineering, barely cites the scientific literature at all at least in its patents. And that's consistent broadly with survey evidence. So we go back to this old 1994 survey of corporate R&D managers, and that finds that less than 15% of R&D projects in, say, automobiles or general manufacturing or electrical equipment, less than 15% of those say they rely on public research. But just because an invention doesn't rely directly on science doesn't mean that science plays no role in it. So scientific knowledge and principles can get embodied in technologies that other technologies in turn use as components. To take one example, uh, chemistry and metallurgy heavily cite the scientific literature. Maybe some new chemistry production process gets patented, cites the scientific literature, and this new process allows for the manufacture of new kinds of composites. And these composites in turn end up getting patented And they, in turn, allow for the creation of some kind of new engine that's more powerful because it's built out of this new composite material. It might be the case that the composite and the engine, neither neither one would be possible without the underlying science, but neither patent for those cites the science. And if you survey the inventors of these things, they claim they don't depend on science at all because from their perspective what they really care about is that there was this new production process that came along and allowed them to do something that they couldn't do before. So there's actually a way to measure this distance from science that I've discussed before in other podcasts or I think other newsletters. So in the example above, it might be that, you know, this new type of composite doesn't cite any scientific articles itself, but it might still cite the patents for that new chemistry production process. And those patents might cite science Moreover, the engine patent in the example before might cite that composite, the patent for the composite material. And since that composite material in turn cites the science-based production process, you can kind of see a link to science in that way. And so there's a paper by Ahmed and Jones from 2018 that uses this basic idea to measure the distance from science of all U.S. patents by counting the smallest number of citation steps between a patent and a scientific article. So a patent that cites a scientific article has what they call a distance of one. And a patent that cites no science itself, but does cite a patent that cites a scientific article, has a distance of two, and so on. In Amit porn Jones's sample of patents from 1976 to 2013 only 16% of patents directly cite a scientific article, but 61% of patents are connected to science via some kind of chain of citation, most commonly a distance of three from science. That is, they cite an article, or they cite a patent that cites a patent that cites a scientific article. And there's some direct, indirect evidence that this measure of distance from science really does capture something real. So patents that are closer to science as measured in this way, have some of the characteristics of patents that directly cite science. For example, as discussed in other posts, patents that cite scientific articles tend to be more valuable than those that don't, and they also tend to be more likely to be traded. But it's also true that if you look only at patents that don't directly cite science, those that are closer to science are still more valuable and more likely to be traded than those that are farther from science. Most of the natural experiments discussed in last week's post, more science leads to more innovation, pertain to patents with a distance of just one. They directly cite a scientific article. In fact, half of the articles or the papers and studies we considered in that post explicitly measured the link between science and technology via a citation from a patent to a journal article, which by definition means they have a distance of one using this Ahmed and Jones uh, measure of distance from science. But if there's a knock-on effect for patents further from science, those with a distance of two or more, those papers are not going to identify that. Now, there's another strand of literature that gives us some good reasons to think there are significant knock-on effects. Technologies tend to be hierarchically composed of many sub-technologies and to build on each other in ways that are actually kind of stable and predictable at least over a couple of years. And that means there's some degree of predictability about technological trends. If there is a flurry of breakthroughs in an upstream technology, downstream technologies that tend to use that as an important component or which tend to adapt its principles and uses for new contexts, are likely to see a flurry of breakthroughs in subsequent years. And there are ways to actually observe this hierarchy and use these relationships to make predictions. So U.S. patents are classified as primarily belonging to one of several hundred technology classifications. An example of these classifications range from class 12 for boot and shoemaking patents to class 706 for data processing artificial intelligence patents. And the hierarchical relationship between these technology classes can be observed in the citations of the patents that belong to these classes. Asimoglu, Exiget, and Kerr have a 2016 paper that builds a directed network between different technology classes where the strength of a link between two classes is given by the probability that a patent in the one cites the other. So Asimoglu, Exiget, and Kerr show that there's a statistically significant relationship between patent activity in upstream classes on the patenting of downstream classes, which is, you know, the ones that historically cite this class heavily. Another paper by Pitchler, LaFond, and Farmer from 2020 performs a similar exercise. And in the newsletter, we have a figure that plots the correlation between the growth rate of patents in a given class and the growth rate of the weighted average growth rate of upstream. And they're just really tightly correlated. They move up and to the right together. Now, it turns out that these correlations are actually robust enough to be used for forecasting. So in one application, SMOGLU, Exiget, and Kerr use data from 1975 through 1994 to fit their statistical model. And then they use that model to predict the number of patents in the following 10 years. Now, after you adjust for the influence of technological classification, because, for example, some classes always patent more than others and you want to take that into account... And you take into account things like time, because in most classes, there tend to be more patent applications every year. So there's a time trend in these things. But even if you control for all that, they find that a 10% increase in predicted patenting, that is based on the growth of patenting in classes that are upstream. A 10% increase in predicted patenting is associated with an actual out-of-sample 3 to 4% increase in patenting. Pitchler, Lafond, and Farmer set themselves an even harder statistical task—not just to predict the number of patents, but the actual growth rate in the number of patents. And they fit a number of alternative models based on data from even earlier, 1945 to 1987. And they use this to predict the growth rate of patenting in every technology class as a function of the upstream growth rate of patents. And they're doing this over lots of different models. And they use which they use data from 19. 19- 88 through 2002 to find the model that best predicts out of sample. So now they've picked the best one based on uh, performance over sort of 1945 to 2002. They take all that data, 1945 to 2002, they refit it statistically, and then they use the single model that was the best performer to predict from uh, 2003 to 2017. And then they look to see how well it does. Now, to understand its performance, you need some kind of benchmark. And so to do for their benchmark, they're going to replicate their whole procedure uh, but exclude this data on upstream patenting. And that means that instead their benchmark is just going to predict patenting in any given class based on historical trends in patenting in that class. Are they going up? Are they going down? Do they tend to go up and down in sort of a oscillation or what? Again, they find that the model that best predicts out of sample, you know, from 1988 to 2002, they re-estimate it, and then they use that to predict and forecast out of sample from 2003 to 2017. And they plot the results in their figure below. At its peak, the model that uses data on upstream patenting is like 40%, uh, gets a 40% gain in predictability relative to this benchmark. So what does it all boil down to? Historical patent citations allow us to identify the technology classes that lie upstream of any other class, and upstream patenting predicts downstream patenting in the future out of sample in at least two different papers. So we have two related but different ways of measuring indirect knowledge flows among patented technologies. Some papers have measured the distance from science via the fastest citation chain to a scientific paper. Others have defined upstream and downstream relationships among technologies based on the total share of citations that flow from one technology class to another. And so a natural question is the extent to which these two different measures line up. And that can tell us something about how science indirectly impacts technology. For example, we know that science tends to lead to more innovation in technology classes that directly depend on science, the ones with a distance of one according to Ahmed Porn-Jones. Are these technology classes in turn directly upstream of many other classes? If that's the case, then the results from Asimoglu, Exegat, and Kerr, and Pitchler, Lafond, and Farmer would predict an increase in science-based innovation is going to lead to a second round of innovation in the technologies that lie downstream. And if those classes are themselves upstream of other classes, there could be a second reverberation and so on. So I computed a figure... Uh, that you can look at in the chart with the average distance to science for U.S. patents over 1976 to 2018, based on this Amitpour and Jones method and using Marx and Fugy's dataset. On the horizontal axis, it measures the distance to science for patents belonging to each of 307 different technology classes. Since I'm interested in the indirect impact of science on technology, I limited my attention to technology classes that have a distance of two or greater. So I'm looking only at technologies that don't typically cite scientific papers directly. And in the figure, uh, some classes are to the left, means they're closer to science, as close as a distance of two, and some are farther away if they're on the right, as far away as about five steps away. And on the vertical axis, I've got the average distance to science of the upstream technology classes weighted by uh, the citation share of a class. So the lower a dot in this case, the closer to science. And these can go all the way down to a distance of one, which means they almost always directly cite science. So let's take a specific example. If you think look at the uh, patents of class 81, which is tools... It has an average distance to, the patents in that class have a distance to technology of about four and a half on average. And that means that the shortest distance to science for tool patents typically involves citing a patent that cites a patent that cites a patent that cites a patent that cites a a scientific article. Now, the upstream of this, of these tool patents, the classes of technology that most typically get cited by tool patents have a distance that is more like 3.6 so about one step closer and these upstream classes include things like class 29 metalworking so tool patents tend often cite metalworking patents those metalworking patents tend to have a distance to science of three instead of 4.5 they also tend to cite class 30 cutlery which has a distance of 4.1 on average And the main takeaway is that classes directly upstream of these tool patents tend to be closer to science than the tool patents do. And that turns out to be not atypical. For all the classes that I look at in this figure, 78% of them cite upstream classes that tend to be closer to science than they are themselves. And that difference though isn't uniform. If you look only at technologies that are kind of far from science, so they're three or four steps away, so three steps is like, you know, three citations, so a patent citing a patent that cites a patent that cites science. If you look at ones that are that far away or more, 95% of them lie downstream of technologies closer to science science than they are. But if you look at classes in the range of two to three intervals, it's actually 50-50, And that essentially means that technologies that are just one to two citation steps removed from science largely cite each other. They don't primarily build on technologies that are closer to science, but technologies further out do. So just one more time, because it's sort of hard, I think, in audio. Technologies that are like uh, one or two steps removed, they tend to just cite other technologies that are one to two steps removed. Patents that are further away, they tend to cite patents that are closer to science than they are themselves. So where do we all stand? In more science leads to more innovation. The podcast from last week, we looked at pretty compelling evidence that increasing the supply of science tends to lead to more innovation, but that direct effect is concentrated in a relatively small share of technologies. Remember only a quarter of patents directly cite scientific work. However, any innovation tends to have spillover effects Uh, As discussed in another podcast or another newsletter, the magnitude of these unintended benefits of science, these spillovers tend to be at least comparable to the intended benefits. And in this post, we looked at a specific kind of spillover. An increase in innovation tends to lead to further innovation in what are called downstream technologies. And we can identify those based on citations. So we have no reason to think that this effect is going to be so different for innovation. Any field that sees an increase in innovation due to science is probably going to have downstream fields that will benefit as well. Initially, these downstream fields might also be relatively close to science themselves, but it seems like eventually the passing of technological concepts and improved components from upstream to downstream does become a channel through which the fruits of science might measurably flow. Thanks, everybody. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.